You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Hi, welcome to uh, Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. I'm very happy to have here Vincent Labruto, who's a uh, Vincent, are you a professor at School of Visual Arts, or what exactly is your title, please? It's interesting that you mentioned that, is that um, a lot of my students, especially foreign students, like to call me professor, but I'm not a professor. Uh, I'm an, at SVA, they call us instructors. Instructors. I always say I'm a teacher, you know. Okay, well, thank you. So a teacher at the School of Visual Arts, and you've written several very well-received biographies on both Martin Scorsese and Stanley Kubrick, and obviously the focus of our talk today is Stanley Kubrick, and thank you again so much for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Could you please tell me how you got interested in Stanley Kubrick and to, to what led you to write this book about him? It's a great question. It's, a, it's sort of a, a long answer. I'll try to compress it a little bit. Um, you know, as someone who got into film very early, you know, in, in my high teens, that I was always uh, interested in film, and I was always going to the movies, especially, you know, once I, I uh, got into film school at the School of Visual Arts. So... In some ways, a very particular uh, event got me started on a track to do a book on Kubrick. And it was at SVA, probably 1970, could have been 71, and I saw Paths of Glory, which is a masterpiece by Kubrick. Yes. And especially towards the beginning, there are these incredible dolly shots. Uh, It's a war film, so they're tracking Kirk Douglas in in these trenches, and I never forgot that. I was very, uh, I was sort of shaken by it. I thought it was an incredible film. And then, of course, I went on my way to film school and I became an editor. And all the while, I would see a Stanley Kubrick film because it was Stanley Kubrick. And, and I did that. And then what happened was, is I wrote a book, I wrote a series of books, actually, on the, the uh, film crafts. And I wanted to then move up into something else, which was uh, biographies. And I had a role model. His name is Patrick McGilligan. And I, I always talked to him on the phone. I never met him. Uh, he's, he's from Wisconsin. And I never got a chance to, to meet him. Maybe one day I will. But I wrote him a letter, and he called me. And we talked about that I wanted to move up like he did. So we talked about the idea of who would I do? Who would I write a book on? So we, in this apartment here, we have uh, a library, and I have all these uh, film books, and I have them in alphabetical order, all the, uh, certainly the, the directors, and I'm going through it with Pat, and we reach K, and I said, how about Kubrick? And I didn't even know I said it, I just sort of said it, and we thought about it, and to me, at that time and now, at that time, he was the greatest living director. Now he's one of the greatest directors of all time. So that that put me on the direct path to, to actually uh, write the book, and it took four years. And, you know, I had to get a publisher and, um, you know, a whole complicated process of, of writing it. Um, some people thought it was impossible, 
which really got me interested in doing it and excited in doing it. Right, because he didn't cooperate and, with you. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Because he didn't cooperate with you, so it was, I'm sure, very tough for you to get it done. You know, that's uh, that's interesting in the sense that, that it's very rare. If you get cooperation, you may not have a great book, because if you have cooperation, they have to read it or they want to read it, and it becomes what they want it to be. Okay. And there may be some things, some dark things, even about the you know about the films that they don't want. In. So I wrote Kubrick, and I told him I didn't want to interview him, uh, but that, that I wanted his cooperation in other ways, uh, you know, access to his office by phone and, and, and that sort of a thing. And um, he didn't contact me and say no or yes. He said nothing. Okay. Which I like, yeah, that was great. <laughs> he said nothing. But there were some occasions where I did, people did ask that he would have to say yes before I could interview them. And that didn't work out. Okay. But it wasn't much. Well, let me just give a brief background from your book, then I ask you definitely to like to delve into his films. Um, he obviously is born in the Bronx, 1928. Um, after high school, he gets hired by Look Magazine. You write in the book there's a lot of competition with the GI Bill and people leaving World War II to go into college. And basically, um, so that makes it hard for Kubrick, and his grades are not the best. And you write that when he's at Look Magazine, he gets acquainted with issues of light and depth and space. And you said it's uh, the reality that he sees as a photographer throbs through the beating heart of every Kubrick film. So I guess you would see it as a Look magazine as an invaluable experience for him and, and what he later becomes. Would you agree with that? Totally. Yeah. Um, then he does his first short film, Age 21, Day of the Fight, which you have interesting stories about that, um, how, how serious and intense he wants, how, how he commanded respect even at a young age of 21. Then he does a Flying Padre. Um, then, interestingly enough, his uncle, who owns a uh, chain of drugstores in California, mm-hmm. says to him, listen, you're, you're pretty good. I'll give you a share. I'll give you money to do films, but I want a share of your future profits. And he says no to his uncle. And, of course, uh, you say he demonstrates his steely business reserve um, even then. Most people would have probably taken that offer, especially when they had no experience. Then he goes on to do um, – his uncle later backs down. He does back him. He does Killer's Kiss and The Killing. Um, and then, of course, we get to uh, Path of Glory, which I want to talk to you about. Um, that, to me, is probably his, his most important film to date in 1958, at that time. Would you agree? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. And you talk about um, the cynicism of war in that film. It kind of reminds me of a little bit of um, Dr. Strangelove, because the general in that film is kind of crazy. He orders the troops to fire on his own people in the same way that Jack Ripper is kind of crazy in Dr. Strangelove. And you talk about the tracking that he does. Like, for example, he wants to show the bottom and the top of the trenches. So he gets um, tracking uh, outside of the shot so you don't see it so the camera can move without seeing any any trace of it. Could you just discuss a little bit how he filmed that and how innovative it was? Yeah, it was incredibly innovative. And actually, he, he was told... Um, it, it's actually not, not to be um, picky, but it, it's actually a uh, dolly shot. But it does look like a tracking shot, you know, the, 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 but they didn't lay tracks. It was on a dolly. And his expert said, you know, you can't do it, you know, and you shouldn't do it and all these kind of uh, um, negative things. And the, you know, the thing is that there's ground and then there's, you know, the, the, um, the there was planks of wood that they uh, track or, uh, you know, certainly dolly on. And... Um, the thing is, is that they didn't want to walk on the dirt because they could get um, damp. It could be damp, and they can get infection, that kind of thing. Okay. So Kubrick insisted that they had the, the, the planks. There was a big argument about it. But um, so what they did is then they, they they pushed it 
slowly. And what, what to me, what is so amazing is, is that, let's say it's the one on Kirk Douglas from behind. The distance between the lens and Kirk Douglas put, it seems to stay the same, pretty much. And, and it moves along that, which makes it exciting. I mean, you could have moved ahead and moved back. But it makes you feel like you're in the trench and you're behind him. It, um, it's, a, it's a chilling shot. And, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, I like going out on a limb every once in a while. It's probably the most famous, one of the most famous uh, golly shots of all time. Yeah, it, it, it certainly captures what it was like to be, a, I guess, a soldier in World War One with those endless trenches and death waiting you at every turn. As you as he sort of captures in that, um, and interestingly enough, I believe it was in that film he meets his third wife, who was the only woman in the role in the in the film. Right, and uh, and she is related to a, sort of an anti-Semitic German guy who wrote who did the book, um, um, an anti-Jewish film, uh, Harlan. Right. Harlan was her relative. Her relative. If I remember correctly, I think it was her uncle. Her uncle, yeah. And his name is Viet Harlan. And he made the most anti-Semitic, hateful film probably ever made, Jew Suss, I believe he pronounced it. Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And here's Stanley Kubrick, Jewish guy, marrying um, this person, having the happiest probably marriage of, of the three marriages with someone who's related to someone like that. It's just an interesting uh, fact. And then he goes on to um, Spartacus, which, as you say in the book, is not really his project. It's something that he's brought into. Although it's a it's a big production film, it has uh, Lawrence Olivier and Kirk Douglas. It's a, about a slave revolt in ancient Rome, um, but it's not really his picture, correct? Correct. Uh, he was brought in by Kirk Douglas. Brought in by Kirk Douglas, the, right? The, the, the original director, Anthony Mann, who was on Matter of Days, I believe, um, was fired. Right. So Kubrick had like a weekend to prepare. Right. It's pretty amazing and, you could step into that and and, and, and pull that off. It is, and it was, um, in some ways, a very, this I have to sort of be careful about, um, a very unpleasant experience, mainly for the, his work with the cameraman, Russell Medeu, who's a great, he's long gone, he's a great cameraman, and there's a famous story, I believe I could, I could say this, um, that could look like being on the crane, you know, which went up and down, okay. you know, a real Hollywood uh, technique at the time, and he got the opportunity to use it. And um, Russell Meddy was getting very uh, aggravated that, that he was on the crane so much. And supposedly, he said, let's get the Jew boy off the crane. <laughs> Gosh. Something like that. Okay. And I think, if I remember correctly, you know, I'm not uh, double-checking these things, unfortunately, but I, I think that's in Tony Curtis's book. Okay. Who was in the, he, Tony Curtis was in the film, and he wrote a memoir. Right, right. So it was, you know, so it was an unpleasant experience. That's, that's how he was brought in through Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas actually um, sort of owned Kubrick and and Jimmy Harris, uh, James Harris, the um, the producer, his Kubrick's producer. And um, what happened was they had a really big fight, uh, you know, after that. And um, the the, the uh, Kubrick, you know, they decided to break up. And the interesting thing is Kirk Douglas, who's still alive, what is he, 100 or 101? Something like that, yes. He had a stroke about 20 years ago. He would have owned all of Kubrick's films. That's the way the deal was. It was so many years in advance. Okay. He would have owned 2001. Wow. Wow. And he never complained about it. Uh, Yeah, he's a remarkable man, as as far as I'm concerned. And 
what I didn't realize, also your book is interesting too, and it talks about how he uses music to make the actors get into a certain mood, and he uses that here, obviously, obviously 2001, it's filled with music, most of it's more music than dialogue, and he used it in The Shining as well, but I didn't realize too how, how important music was to Kubrick, not just for the film, but getting the actors to do what he wanted to set the mood. You know, what's interesting about Kubrick is that, is that he, he was interested in a lot of things in the arts, especially, and um, he was very interested in music. Supposedly, he had, you know, talking about the vinyl days, then he moved into other, you know, uh, other forms of, of music, ways of, of, of producing music, that he had, like, every... He felt it wasn't a big deal to get every release. He just he would send somebody out at the end of the week, and they would buy whatever is out, you know? Okay. And he would do that. He did that in books as as well. So um, so he knew a lot about music, and to him it was a very important uh, tool, especially the effect that it had in the finished film, and especially 2001 actually had a score, and he threw it out and, and went with the records. Really? Wow. You know, Interesting. <laughs> need I say more? I mean, uh, you know, uh, Zarathustra and all the other. Um, Musical pieces are legendary now. Right, it's right. Fifty years old. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's the technical effects are amazing too. So if I could just turn to Lolita, which was really the first big film, I would guess that's really his. He goes to Nabokov, the writer of Lolita. He asks him to do the screenplay. He doesn't really in this in in the film really use the screenplay, but he gets Nabokov to write it. He has a lot of problems with the censors. You talk about getting that film made for obvious reasons, given the subject matter of a young girl with an older man and and then he uses a Peter Sellers for the first time who plays multiple characters just like in Dr. Strangelove could you just right. a, discuss a little bit about Lolita and his, his role in that film in, in um, Peter Sellers role I'm sorry uh, Kubrick's role in getting Lolita, Lolita made and how he filmed it okay, and yeah, yeah thank you sorry about that um, yeah that was an interesting part of the, the, the research because uh, my wife and I went to California and we found all kinds of uh, luckily all kinds of documents and I interviewed, uh, I did interview James V. Harris, who's still around, and he uh, was Kubrick's partner, and um, they had their own company. And basically what happened was Kubrick worked on the business side. Okay. And Jimmy worked on the church, because the Catholic Church was key in those days. You know, the, the, if they can so-called condemn the film, you, you, you would get in the water. I mean, it would, it would be hard to even, uh, you know, stay in release or get it in release. So there was a, a huge struggle with that. And, you know, we're talking about a long time ago when you really, there was a lot of things you couldn't do. So what he did is he went with a, a little bit older actress, Sue Lyon, and um, that, you know, that, that, that seemed to work. And he really totally cut it down where, where there was anything that, that would, be, um, would be a problem and, and, and kept it down. There's one thing that's, that's in the book that's a little bit controversial, is there is a moment where Lolita and Hunter uh, Harbert are, are in a, um, I think it's a hotel room, and she, he's sitting down, she's sitting uh, sort of like above him, and her head starts to come down towards his body and okay. cuts, uh, implying, you know, uh, the obvious, I think. Right. And... Um, that's that, that's the most um, you know the farthest he went. I mean, he wouldn't go with anything else. Would have been uh, also. I, I think he felt he three daughters of his own. So I think he felt you know doing anything more than having her in a bikini would have been you know uh, wrong to do. 
Right. You talk about also how he does a lot of long takes in that film. It kind of reminded me of, of Hitchcock in North by Northwest when there's the crop dusting plane scene and Hitchcock had that very long scene before the crop duster comes down on Cary Grant. Did, did you mean that uh, Kubrick sort of developed a style where he took things slowly? Is that sort of what you were saying? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, the dolly shot and, uh, and this what you're, what you're talking about now, the long take, are uh, the most famous things, I think, you know, that, that uh, signify uh, Kubrick. And, um, you know, a lot of things that's interesting, you don't necessarily know exactly where it came from. To a certain extent, it came from a film called La Ronde. And, um, you know, that Kubrick developed a style where he liked takes that, that were long. So this way, you know, he didn't have to, uh, you know, like Woody Allen also has long takes, you know, where you don't have to go in and do other shots to, to cover. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, Ophel's work in general, as the director of, uh, of Iran, I think that had a lot to do with Kubrick, you know, moving into that style. And it, um, I think for the viewer it's interesting, too, you know, because it takes you... Uh, on a very specific kind of trip as opposed to going here, there, there, you know, all the cutting. Sure. That people yeah, sorry. Absolutely, yes. Um, and then just to turn into uh, Dr. Strangelove now, which is one of my favorite films of Kubrick, and actually um, Ken Adam, who designed the set for that, I bought a little piece that he did for the movie Sleuth. Those are the little movie piece he did in the beginning that showed the stages. I bought it very yeah, cheaply. Yeah, so- in the theater. I saw it in the yeah, exactly. You saw it in the theater. It was a play originally. And um, I understand Ken Adam would later call Stanley Cooper again to consult with the lighting on the movie um, The Spy Who Loved Me in the 70s. But anyway, so Ken Adam designs a famous desk that's used in that. They use an IBM facility, I think, for the uh, screen. Um, he turns it into essentially a farce from what is a serious book, I think you said, called Red Alert. Could you discuss a little bit about um, Dr. Strangelove, please, and how that came about? Yeah, it's a great, great film. My students uh, love it, you know, when I show them, uh, show it to them. And, um, yes, it was based on Red Alert, which was a serious book. And Kubrick, like a lot of us, you know, at that time, you know, it came out in 64, 1964, uh, was obsessed with the, you know, with fear, really, about, about uh, you know, a nuclear attack. So, um, you know, they, they always say, right, the best way to deal with a fear like that is to sort of jump into it. So he did, and he made, made this film. And yet, originally it was going to be a serious film, and then, you know, and it's interesting, you know, the, where it comes from, because the, 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 Jimmy Harris felt that he inspired it, other people say, you know, other people inspired it, but he moved into, he got Terry Southern to, to work with him, the great uh, writer, satirical writer, and other things. Um, and they started to take it into all kinds of, of different directions, and, you know, What's interesting for the viewer on that film is that it's hysterical, and it's also scary. <laughs> right, yes, time. it's both, yes. You exactly. know, now it's sort of different to a certain extent of how people see it now. But in those days, it was like, you know, what am I watching? This is, you know, people people have been, uh, Spielberg's talked about it, the film's impact on him, and, um, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of directors, Oliver Stone was greatly moved by it. It's, uh, it's an amazing film. It's interesting, too, how you talk about how he had to convince Peter Sellers to play that many roles. I just assumed Peter Sellers would do it would do it naturally. And one of the accents Peter Sellers couldn't master, I think you said someone else had to play it, but he, he sort of had to, had to get Peter Sellers to do all those accents. It wasn't Peter Sellers' first choice to play all those roles, as I understand it. Well, and what's interesting is that Kubrick wanted him to do another role. And this is really surprising, especially those who know, know the film, 
the, the gentleman who rides the, the missile down at the end of the film? Yes, yes, Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens yeah. He wanted him to play that, and he was going to do it. And see, psychologically, it's an interesting thing that, the, that Peter Sellers was walking around, he was getting nervous about it, and somehow he, um, I don't think he broke his ankle, but he injured his ankle and said he couldn't do it. So he got Slim Pickens in to do it, which... You know, as great as, as uh, Mr. Sellers was in, in all those roles, I don't think he could have been anywhere near what Slim Pickens brought to it. Do you think Kubrick himself, do you have any idea whether he was a, a liberal or a conservative, and, and, and did the film reflect any of his political views? Great question. You know, I've spent, I don't know how long trying to figure out the answer to that. Um, I think he may have, I mean, it seemed like, like people felt that he may have been more to, to the right than the left, but not much, though. Okay. He well, wasn't, he wasn't a, a liberal, which you would think, you know, out of his, out of his background, but he wasn't. Okay, I'd like to turn to now um, probably his most famous film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film which I saw in the 70s at a Ziegfeld retrospective, which you talk about in the book how it played the Ziegfeld in the 70s, and that's when I saw it. And, of course, it made a huge impact upon me. I didn't even know who Kubrick was, but he hires Arthur C. Clarke to basically adapt a novel, Sentinel, and he, he works at it at the Chelsea Hotel, where they, if you go to the Chelsea Hotel today, there's a big plaque saying, Hal was born here, of course, and that was uh, Stanley Kubrick's doing. Um, and he, uh, just all the amazing special effects that he got to do. I think he said 18 months of special effects, like the slow-motion camber to simulate space. It was just a painstaking process to get that done. Uh, the use of the Blue Danube um, in the beginning of, for the music. Um, could you just talk about that, a little bit of technical things and how he did it? And I'd like to ask about what you, what you think about the film, the meaning of it, please. Yeah, it's, it's a landmark film, especially for, for the effects which you won an Oscar for. Uh, just as an aside, um, you know, Kubrick, Kubrick felt the Oscar was his, right, and not the not the uh, gentleman who worked on it. Um, several gentlemen, and you know that, that says a lot about him. You know, uh, <laughs> it's certainly good, but you know, um, but he did. I mean, he's the director of the film. He was working with them uh, carefully. But the the thing that is amazing is that every one of those effects was done on film. There was no digital, right? You know, no digital effects. So the film inspired literally every special effects man and woman from then to now, which is you know quite a bit to say, I think. And um, you know, all of the effects. I mean, the one, the, the slit scans uh, um, equipment. You know, where at the end you're going through the time warp. Best way I think to explain it. And all the colors are, are, are shooting by on the right and the left. Yes. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it takes your breath away. And uh, Doug, Douglas Trumbull did that and a lot of the effects. He was probably the youngest of, of, the, of the crew. But it is a film, it, it really is, you know, talk about Small World. It's amazing that you saw it in the Zinkfeld as I did. Um, I'm pretty sure the day I was there, there was like almost no one there. Oh, really? Yeah. That, Wait, did you have a crowd when you saw it? I did. I saw it in the evening in the late 70s. But, of course, that's why the Ziegfeld closed, unfortunately, because there never was anyone there. So it was a great place to go to see a movie. I know. I also saw Lawrence of Arabia there. Oh, wow. Uh, but when I was there, it was it was in the – it probably was like a noon show, you know, like afternoon show, you know, 12 o'clock show. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, it was very. I think it was the last theater in New York City with more than a thousand seats. So it's very sad. Could I just ask you about what your interpretation of the film is? Obviously, the monolith appears, and there's the there's the ape scene, the Donna Man. Then it appears on um, the moon, and then there's this mission to Jupiter where the Hal, that wonderful computer, which you write about how the, how he didn't know he was going to use the voice for Hal, so he uses a guy with a Cockney accent, which of course would be totally inappropriate to what's the, what the person who played Hal eventually was. So that was amazing acting to get those people to react to that accent versus what the, the amazing voice that it yeah. became. But, but what is your, I mean, Kubrick said, I think you write in the book that he said it's a search for God essentially, but what is your view of what he was trying to say with that film? Could you have any, um, any feelings on it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the, you know, I'm glad you brought up the monolith because that, that comes up, you know, a lot of the time when people, you know, on both sides, but especially on people who don't like the film. Um, it's, it's a marker. It's a way of, of saying we were here. Okay. And communications also, because, uh, you know, especially in the, in the ape scene, it um, makes a sound and the apes come closer to it. So, um, you know, to me, 2001 A Space Odyssey is, is a major masterpiece. It's one of the greatest films ever made. And it's controversial in the sense that people still are arguing about whether it's a good film or not, uh, you know, whether they understand it or not. You know, I tell people, see the film and just you know, move through it and, and don't necessarily try to, to interpret it. But that's the, that's the best answer that, that I could give you, is that, is that it's in the Sentinel actually talk, talks about it being, a, um, you know, the monolith being a marker. Okay. So that's really what, what it is, and, and they obviously were, on, were uh, in, in the time of the, uh, the apes, and they were in the time of the, uh, the astronauts. And what's amazing... Shows, you know what I think it, it throws people off when it shows up in their bedroom. And that room itself, you know, the way it's the way it's decorated, yes. uh, I guess, sort of a Victorian kind of Napoleonic uh, manner. People say, "How did? It, how could it be there?" But um, but that is that, that is Clark's answer. The other thing, just very quickly uh, about the Sentinel is it was, it was based on the Sentinel, as, as you pointed out. And one of the things that's less mentioned for some reason is that he also bought several other clock stories and he did it pretty much to cover himself you know so he could do what he wanted pretty much and still have have the have the rights now i never really have delved into research hopefully somebody else will about how much those other stories if, if those other stories have anything to do at all with 2001 but it is the sentinel is a, is a great great short story i recommend it highly and the movie is, is a, could only look, it's not a sci-fi masterpiece, it's, but it, it is a cinema masterpiece. And what's interesting about that is that film gets poor reviews, just like a lot of Kubrick's films, and yet he, concurrently, even though he's getting these poor reviews, he's extremely respected, so it's kind of an odd dichotomy to get bad reviews and yet be very respected concurrently. Yeah, in plain language, it, it was slammed. Right. Uh, you know, Pauline Kael, uh, you know, a lot of people. And, um, you know, and I, and I encounter this, I, you know, I mean, when you teach film, you know, film and you have film students, it's very, I don't know if I ever had a film student that didn't like the film, but, uh, you know, my, own, my wife does not like 2001 A Space Odyssey. She doesn't understand it. She actually was friends with uh, Stanley Kaufman, the, the late uh, film critic, and asked him, you know, uh, what he thought of it. He, he, he really gave it a bad review. But um, it's still, you know, a landmark. 
especially you know the way that it uses you know I mean it's in a very specific way I know it's a it takes place in outer space but time space time and space is Kubrick right the master I once met someone a film student who said that he was from somewhere in Europe and I don't remember at the time but he he uh, he wanted to meet me and I said of course so he, he comes over grabs my hand shakes my hand and he says Kubrick time and space. <laughs> Interesting. Did you believe that? Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so now, basically, with the success of 2001, Cooper becomes very wealthy. He gets to sort of live the life he likes. He gets his mansion in England. And although he's a pilot, you talked about earlier in the book how he learned to fly in New Jersey, he refuses to fly because he calculates the risk and doesn't want to take that risk. He looks about doing some other projects. One is a failed project on Napoleon. And I think you're right about how he's got an index card for every day of Napoleon's life. And yes. I'm, I'm just amazing, like almost like a battlefield commander planning out these films. And uh, I think another film he was going to make was called The Aryan Papers. And, uh, of course, he doesn't make either of those two films. It's, it's kind of a shame. They would have been probably wonderful films, no? It, it would have been a big shame. Napoleon, you know, one of the things I really pride myself is that a gentleman quite a while past now, Bob Gaffney, Somebody knew him, and he actually lives in, in, in my area here, and, and, and we met. He he lived with lived with Kubrick for a long time, and they were getting ready for Napoleon. And it really, very simply, turned out to be a money thing, a budget thing. The studio was interested, and they weren't interested. It, it, it skyrocketed at one point, what the, the budget would be. Aryan Papers is... Um, you know, ironically, I'm sitting in front of it, uh, a copy of uh, Schindler's List, Spielberg. Right. And Kubrick felt that Spielberg, you know, had done this subject, you know, um, and uh, decided not not to do it. Yeah. It's am- okay, I just want to turn to Clockwork Orange. Before I get to that, just one of the things you mentioned, too, in the book is when he looks for location scenes, he sends, like, a bunch of teams out to look at, look at locations. They photograph everything, the level of detail, another Kubrick trait, just, just unbelievable. So anyway... Back to Clockwork Orange now, his next film. And Kubrick says in that, it says um, it's an example of freedom and free will and let the person decide whether it's good to have free will or should the government involve themselves, essentially trying to change someone. That there was that sort of that struggle. Um, could you just talk about that? Was, is that your understanding of the meaning of, of Clockwork Orange for him, with that, how the government tries to reform that person, does that terrible rape of that, that, of that couple? Yeah, it, it, it was. You know, Anthony Burgess wrote, wrote the, the book, and um, he was inspired is the wrong word. He was moved to do um, the book because his wife had been raped. And I don't think, I, you know, it doesn't really matter how old the, the people were, you know, because in the film they're, they're young. But um, it was a very, for him, and he's written about this, a very unpleasant experience. The thing about Clockwork Orange that's really fascinating is that in the book, it's 21 chapters, 21 being the age of, you know, becoming an adult. And Kubrick said that he only, you know, there was a, uh, Burgess was British, so there was a British uh, version, copy, and then there was an American one. And Kubrick says he only saw the American one, which no one really knows. And and um, it's interesting because uh I think people would have felt differently about the film because people have been very uh, strong about this film. Young people uh, really are attracted to it, and um, but but again, if he would have gone to twenty first chapter, it would have sort of not excused him. But he talks about uh, you know uh, the Malcolm McDowell character talks about the idea 
of of uh, growing up and if that's in his past. And I think Burgess felt he had to do that, you know, because the book was so uh, so incredibly uh, strong in terms of the violence. Right, right. Um, and also, doesn't he tell the the lead actor he can what would he like to sing during the rape scene? Let's him decide what to sing. Um, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, it, it, it came about in a, in a rehearsal. And um, I don't know whether they had to, to get the, the rights to it, um, but I do know that people associated with the song were, were not happy, to say the least. You right, know, of course. The and um, that is a very, uh, I find that scene a very difficult one to watch. Probably the most difficult thing about writing the book was watching Clockwork Orange over and over again. I had seen it, I just thought of something. I, I was I'm 21 when I saw the film. <laughs> I never realized that. But, but anyway, um, you know, it is so incredibly violent. And uh, to the extent that a lot of people were talking about whether the films had gone too far in 71. And what's interesting, I, I didn't realize that his wife was a painter and he used one of his wife's paintings in the living room scene during that attack, which was that his wife's painting was there. Yeah, it's amazing. Christiane uh, Kubrick, and um, as, you, as you mentioned, you know, she was in Paths of Glory. And, um, you know, just you know, very quickly, she's an amazing painter. And I found a book, I, Cooper may have made a call, I don't know, it was Warner Brothers Books. And I, I got it and looked at it, and it's all paintings, and the paintings, her paintings, she paints flowers and landscapes, and she did a lot of it on their grounds. So the part of the book where it talks about, my book, where it talks about um, the grounds and what they look like, Right. I didn't even go there. I saw the book and I wrote it, and Mr. Gaffney told me that, that I nailed it, which I thought was amazing. It was Christiane that nailed it. Interesting. Wow. Um, okay, so after um, Clockwork Orange, he does um, Barry Lyndon based on a Thackeray novel. And you mentioned here in the book that the natural light was important to Kubrick to capture, because obviously that was before electricity. So, I mean, it wasn't one of my favorite films, Barry Lyndon, but you do bring out the natural light and, and the importance of the photography of that film. Is there anything else which, which maybe was Barry Lyndon? Well, probably, the, you, know, uh, you know, I'm using the word controversial a lot, but, but the, you know, the, the zoom, uh, the use of the zoom, the Barry Lyndon is, is one of my favorite Kubrick films, and it's the one that a lot of film people have not seen, and then you tell them to see it, they come back and say, it was great. You know, it's long, as you know. You know, it's three hours. Yes. It's about three hours. So the, the use of the zoom of going slowly in and out, uh, it, it really makes you feel that, you know, there are paintings in the film, but, you know, when it's, when it's on live, live action, uh, it makes you feel like you're in the painting, like the painting is coming alive. Uh, I think the zooms work very well. Some people... Don't agree. You know, they feel some cinematographers don't even uh, agree. Right. It's certainly a beautiful film. There's no question about that. The scenery is gorgeous. It's certainly beautiful. Okay, if I could just get turned to The Shining. The Shining uh, was based on a Stephen King novel. I was in camp in Maine when The Shining came out. Obviously, that was a big talk of uh, the camp. It was like, how do they do that scene with the elevator with the blood? And where was the hotel filmed in Colorado? And is there any truth to them? It was such an impactful film to me and my generation, at least for me growing up that um, I was always surprised that Stephen King didn't like the adaption. I guess there were certain things in the Stephen King novel, like, for example, The Maze Comes Alive, and Kubrick couldn't put that in his film, and, and maybe Stephen King was just very picky about having his complete adaption, but it just always surprised me. that I know he was honored to have Kubrick do the film, but he never liked the film, correct? 
very correct, and I'll tell you something interesting. I I tried to contact. I did con. I did send. You know, uh, I, you know. In those days, I'm not even sure if it was an email. Maybe a letter. But I was very surprised I didn't get a response back because Stephen King, bless him, he blurbs so many books. I mean, it's incredible. Really. So you know, I just wanted to you know to to talk with him, and listen what happened. And I forget the, the year, but my wife and I are, are here, and we're watching TV, and the, we had the ability to see, I don't know if it was HBO, one of the cable stations was going to show something that they don't normally show, and they were going to allow us to do it for you know, a number of hours. And it's a, uh, it's a show on, on, on books, and Stephen King is the guest. So I'm saying to my wife, let's see what happens. He talks about it. Okay. He, he said... One of the things that he never talks about is Kubrick's The Shining. He made a deal with Kubrick about trashing, you know, both both people trashing each other. And he, you know, I, I don't think it involved anything um, monetary or anything, but, but he made a deal with him that he wouldn't talk about it. And that's the whole reason why, why that happened. But, you know, what's interesting is that when my book came out, the, around that time, the, Stephen King's The Shining on television, the miniseries, happened. And i got to be honest, I, you know, I really didn't like it much at all, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, they, they got the, the maze moving, as, as you mentioned. Kubrick felt he couldn't get the special effects to do it, you know. The, you know but but, um, but I, I thought that the film was, um, you know, uh, the, the TV series, rather, the miniseries, was not great. And after that, a lot of people, in fact, in interviews, people would, you know, for the book, people would ask me about it, and they would tell me that they, they really uh, disliked it. But, you know, that, that's an argument that could go on and on. Uh, the film is the film. It's a, uh, an important film. It's a popular film. And it's one that's talked about now more for the whole idea of the possibility that it really is about the, the Holocaust and about the Indian Holocaust and the... Um, German right. Holocaust, German uh, American right. or German worldwide Holocaust, and um, you know because of that, you probably you know you, you might know this that there's a documentary made. I did, I it. saw it. Yes. Um, yeah, and I've seen. I interviewed, and in a sense, I haven't seen him in a long time. I'm friends with Jeffrey Cox, who is like sort of the leader of all this. In fact, um, I went to Albion University, and we talked a lot about it. And, and uh, you know, I had we had events where uh, the film was shown and. Um, you know, I told him that I, I, that I respected him very much, but I didn't necessarily believe that these messages were there. Right, right. Um, I just wanted to talk about some of the specifics you mentioned in, in the, the book. Like, for example, you mentioned uh, that Kubrick's daughter had filmed him at work here, and I went back and I looked at that on YouTube. And basically, he talked about in the book how he said he essentially bullied Shelley Duvall, and and that's pretty clear when you watch that video. And he basically did everything he could to make that film excellent. I mean, the number of times that uh, Jack Nicholson kills that chef, Dick Halloran, I mean, the number of takes they did over and over again, and just the, the precision and the level of... Of, of of thought that went into every single thing. It's just almost unbelievable he had the patience to to do that. And uh, even the, creating that maze, they created an entire maze um, behind the uh, production set. The whole production set is, is lighted from the outside to look like natural light. It's all filmed in the interior in England. They delay um, The Empire Strikes Back because the fire starts. You talk about one of the uh, sound stages. And um, like one of the characters, for example, the character that deals with the son, Dr. Uh, uh, Ann Jackson, who plays a doctor there, she has a brief role, but, but the level of, of care that Kubrick p- puts into it is also amazing. Just gives you just 
a level of his obsession, and I guess the level of care he put into things. She, uh, she was great in it, and she, she passed uh, recently. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's an amazing film for all the reasons that, that you mentioned. You know, the, the, uh, the, the <laughs> you know, it's like, what? And I have to tell you something about the twin girls. Okay. And, you know, when you see the film for the first time or the tenth time, those girls in the hallway, you know, who, who really, uh, by, their, by their existence, sort of frightened um, Danny, that I remember seeing that, and then when it was time, you know, I saw the film, and then later I did the book, much later, and, I, you know, I, I was going through uh, Xerox copies of all of Kubrick's look photographs. I had a student uh, get that for me. And I'm going through it, and then all of a sudden, my heart almost stopped. There was a photograph, black and white, two girls, not the same height, not twins, but anyway, and they were holding hands, I believe. It's been a long time. But, and behind them was two men who had rescued them. They, had, they were in some situation where they needed to get uh, rescued. And I said, hold this. That picture... And you look at the, you know, I, I looked at them together, and the Arbus picture, the Diane Arbus picture, which is famous, and he, and he knew Diane Arbus. And I realized that there was a whole connection that Kubrick, look, you never know. I mean, he took that picture, who knows if he ever saw it again, but it may have been in his mind, you know, to, to set that up like that. Whether there's a direct connection between the two is something I feel strongly about, and, you know, of course, I never got a chance to talk to Mr. Kubrick, so I don't know. Right, right. I mean, um, it's just a, a, many things that are just going on, as you say, in that film. Um, then one of the things you mentioned in the book, too, is that he calls the theater, uh, someone in New York, and says, basically, the New York Times ad is wrong. You, you don't mention that they're showing the nightly film of The Shining. So not only was he watching all the films carefully, he was also dealing with the business side, too, constantly. He had an eye towards that as well. So the level of detail that he had seemed to, seemed to cover almost everything. He was a great businessman. You know, one of the things, one of the many things that, again, you mentioned a lot of them that, that, he, that he covered was the advertising. <laughs> Who does that? I mean, no, I, I should never say no director uh, has ever done this because, you know, I haven't talked to every director or read about every director. But Saul Bass, rest in peace, as they say, um, did the, uh, the print ad for The Shining. Okay. And he said he did he did a lot of different versions of it. Well, Kubrick, you know, agreed. So he was I have to use that word a stickler. Stickler. He was detailed and meticulous. And all, uh, but he was a stickler for for the details. So and he, he always said, you know, he knew it when he saw it. When he saw it, that's it. But before that, he wasn't sure. So Vinny, we're we're coming to the end here. I just want to briefly talk about. Um, full Metal Jacket, and obviously yeah. um, the, the actual R. Lee Emery who plays the drill sergeant was an actual drill sergeant, and once again, tremendous detail and what he does. Is there anything, that's not one of my favorite films, but is there anything that you want to mention about Full Metal Jacket before I ask you some final questions? Sure. It, it, it's not my favorite as well. You know, it, it's based on a book of short timers, and um, the big thing about that film, I think, you know, I tried to, to, to break ground wherever I could, it was hard, but, I, but I, I did find somebody who said that there was three sections to that film. Because everybody says, why were there two sections? Why were there two sections? And if you read the book, it was that way. You know, it was a Kubrick did this on his own. But there was apparently another section that comes 
comes after you know the, the whole thing with the, the newspaper, and then um, you know the the, uh, the person who's going to do the story. There's a there's a piece in the middle there, and then it cuts. So it goes from from the the, uh, the office to the scene, and then to uh, you know Vietnam. Okay. Um. Just just in, in summing up, and we didn't talk much about his personal life, but obviously, as I said briefly, he had a happy third marriage. He had three daughters. Um, you just when you uh, in your research and, and thinking about his life and uh, talking about people that knew him, he seemed like a he could be a gentle person. He was obviously I think cheap, pretty cheap financially. He could be difficult on the set, obviously, but but not a tyrant, but but just just intense. How did you think of him personally, having spent this time with him, sort of sort of speak on writing the book? Did you come across affection for him personally too, or? How do you feel about him? Oh, yeah, very, very much so. You know, and, and one of the things, you know, that that uh, certainly you're, you know, early on and, and now, you know, I, in fact, I would even say to, to people who are interviewing me, uh, either on the radio or on television, whatever it was, I would say, you know, that, that, that he was like a Bronx kind of guy. You know, he was a, he, he, you know, at the time I kept saying he was a regular guy. He obviously wasn't a regular guy, but he had a lot of the Bronx in him still. In, in terms of, of uh, you know, the family life, as, as, as you mentioned. And he was a, a very complicated guy. You know, my feeling, my, my dream was, that's not going to happen, is that he would call me at some point and pick my brain about something he doesn't know about. And I don't know what that would be, <laughs> you know, because he knew a lot about movies. He was um, he was a cineast. He was somebody that, who, who saw a lot of movies. So, you know, over the course of time, there were people who, who, who said, you know, he's a nice guy, he's a great guy, and, and that uh, really stuck with me. Difficult? Yes. No question that, that he was difficult. Um, there'll never be another Stanley Kubrick. I really don't, you know, I, it may be wrong to say that, but I, I don't think I'll see, them, see another Stanley Kubrick in my lifetime. Just a final question, because you wrote another great biography on Martin Scorsese, who obviously directed Goodfellows and a number of wonderful films. If you had to compare Kubrick to Scorsese, is there anything that, I mean, any way they're similar, any ways they're different? The first thing I think of when you say that is that Scorsese was a great admirer of Kubrick, and Barry Lyndon, especially. The scene with uh, where they're out on a, on a porch and the light is like blue, it's nighttime, uh, it, it's you know an amazing film, and it's, you know it's interesting you know that we're talking about Scorsese because the the, the difference is it's a completely different style of Scorsese and the content is different. Then you have if I could throw in and I haven't written a, a, a biography of him, but Spielberg, you know who he became friends with, and then after his death, uh, Spielberg did a, AI. AI, yeah. So there's really you know. Scorsese and just about everybody else. I mean, there's a little bit of Kubrick and a lot of people, especially after he passed, a lot of people um, would do the Kubrick framing, you know, where, where you have something on the right, something on the left, and something in the middle. And uh, But there really is no... The styles, there's almost no one who's, who's a Kubrick. And Scorsese is, is a master. He wound up and still making films. He's made, uh, you know, many more films. Um... And I don't know whether um, Kubrick ever went on record, I don't believe, about how he felt about uh, Scorsese's films. But I'm sure he was a admirer of them. He, he, he really loved film, uh, film and film directors very much. And he always wished that, that, that he could, he said he wished that he could train a young guy to be a Kubrick. And I'm not so sure that, you know, that that was ever going to happen. 
Got it. Well, Vincent Labruto, thank you so much for spending the hour with us and talking about your great biography on Stanley Kubrick and going through his favorite films uh, with me and all, essentially all of his films. And I very much appreciate your time and thank you again. Well, thank you so much. And your questions were terrific. And I can't get over the, the connection of seeing the 2001 at the Ziegfeld. <laughs> oh. I cried when they told me it, they closed it, I have to say. Yeah, I live two blocks from it and I cry every time I walk by it. Yes, it's very sad. Um, anyway, okay. thank you so much and have a good day. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. You served honorably in our nation's armed forces, and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community. Then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA health care facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS.